Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another fantastic and incredible episode for you guys. So hopefully you're ready to enjoy this great episode we've got today. And today we've got a course, as always, a great episode, but we're going to be discussing the 2024 election. Always like returning to that subject, but there's a lot of reasons to go back to the subject. Mainly everyone's freaking out about Trump, both his polling's doing well, uh, they're worried about what he might do on day one. He's even joking that he'll be a dictator on day one. Uh, so we'll discuss that, how the campaign is going, who Trump might pick for VP, how his legal problems are going to uh, stand out. And that's going to be the main topic before we get to the kind of elite questions. So the first thing to note is how well he's polling. Uh, several polls are showing him either beating Biden or neck and neck with Biden. I, it's been rare to find a poll where Trump, where Biden is beating Trump. I just saw a new poll today, uh, which is going by state by state and in several key battleground states, Michigan, Georgia, elsewhere, uh, Trump is trouncing Biden. DeSantis is losing in these battleground states when they assess him versus Biden, but Trump is winning those battleground states. And also in the in the primary, Trump, you know, he's at pretty much 60% now in among polls, huge, huge lead on the rest of the field. And where they're all investing all their time and effort, the opponents not named Trump in Iowa, he is now over 30 points ahead of Ron DeSantis in the Des Moines Register poll, which the Des Moines Register poll is always seen as the as the bar of excellence for the state and it's always no one ever calls it a, a fake poll i'm sure the desantis people will because that's all they have they it shows him with a 32 point lead over desantis a 51 percent desantis at 19 percent haley's at 16 percent uh, i guess the one good news there is that uh desantis is ahead of haley <laughs> by three points uh, so I guess that's something for the DeSantis campaign. But the fact that Trump is now over 50% in Iowa shows that voters are beginning to accept that Trump is going to be the eventual nominee. And there's not even a point to entertaining the other candidates. And we could have seen this at last week's debate. Last, I mean, the debates have all just been goofy. This one was actually at least entertaining because Vivek went off, which we'll talk about Vivek's um, uh, go-off moments later on in the podcast of some people have asked about the in that in the Cotton League question, so we'll talk about that later. Uh, but yeah, it, that was pretty much it. He just laying into uh, Nikki Nikki Haley, asking you know name three provinces of U Eastern Ukraine. It was a, at, finally added some excitement and interest to it. But at the end of the day, it's you know these are all candidates who are at least thirty to four. Well, really, they're all forty points behind Trump now. And so, you know, Trump always used to mock it as the uh, running mate competition, which I don't even think he will pick any running mates. I think the only person likely to get picked would be Vivek uh, among that field who would even be in competition for it. He's obviously not going to pick Chris Christie. He's not going to pick Ron DeSantis. I, he's not going to pick Haley, but that's more likely than Christie or DeSantis. So this is just the field. And... So it's like, what are we watching this? This is a joke. And they're planning even more debates. And it's like, <laughs> this, this, this primary is over. It's Trump. You know, uh, I've been predicting this ever since, you know, the beginning of this year. 
the Trumpsies are going to win. And it's been dismissed. It's been attacked. Everyone, you know, the DeSantis people, like, you're going to pay for this. Which the DeSantis people still have that edge to all their tweets and posts. It's like, if you betray DeSantis, you're going to rue the day. And it's always acting like all these people from governors, senators, powerful institutions, you know, they're all going to be arrested and put in Gitmo when uh, DeSantis comes to power. And it's like, it, you know, everyone, it's just a cascade of endorsements happening. You know, uh, there's even very establishment people like um, Alabama's new senator, Katie Britt, just endorsed Trump. Several other people are endorsing. They're just lining up behind him, several governors. And DeSantis is getting no endorsements <laughs> And even the critical endorsements he needs, like from the Coke Network, which, you know, they began attacking it and acting like they didn't need it. But they need the Coke Network support because they need every dollar they can get. And they're losing all these donors to Nikki Haley. And they're really just stuck with Ron's lack of charisma. You know, Ron does not have much charisma or anything to carry a campaign forward. He needs donor dollars. I mean, what the campaign was built on was uh, universal... Uh, devotion from conservative media that's now beginning to uh, you know fray conservative media no longer wants to pretend Ron DeSantis is the caudillo and you know that's prompted uh, DeSantis shills to promise that they're gonna all conservative media is gonna go to Gitmo when they come to power and then you know there's gonna be some massive punishment for conservative media by going against Ron the obviously inevitable nominee Ron DeSantis so he's losing that and it was donor dollars, and he's losing that to Haley. So, um, I mean, he has effectively done. It's, uh, you know, mocking him is still funny because the shills are still outrageous, and they're still lying to people. And there's still a incentive for some people in conservative ink to pretend to continue to lie about DeSantis and continue to think that this is going to be a competitive primary. But most people are not. Nash Review in all their mainstream, uh, you know, establishment conservatives are basically seeing the writing on the wall and accepting that it's going to be Trump for the most part. There's still some exceptions, but uh, it's moving forward. And once the once the Iowa caucus happens in January and they see, you know, if DeSantis, I, I, DeSantis may finish in third and once Trump wins it by well over 20 points, you know, people are just going to obviously accept this. Maybe it'll take to New Hampshire or South Carolina for this to fully set in. Uh, but yeah, he's just going to be the nominee. Uh, barring a health episode that incapacitates him, he's going to be the nominee. I've been saying that for ever since for like 2021. <laughs> and uh, people doubted me. You know, people were saying it. But um, sometimes you're correct. But it's <laughs> there's been no benefit to being correct on this. It was much better. You've seen a lot of people who are moving around and staying different positions. It was probably a better uh, position for career-wise to pretend that DeSantis was the Caudillo and was going to crush the primary in 2022 and early 2023 and then to stop talking about the primary uh, maybe in like summer, the last, the last summer. And then probably go into being a Trump shill uh, for the general election. There's probably going to be a number of people like that. That was probably the smart move for your political career if you were doing that. But it is what it is. I say the truth no matter what. So, yeah, I've always been with Trump. Always been riding with Trump. And he is going to be the nominee, barring, as I say, barring a health episode. Because even his legal problems won't uh, stymie him. 
and uh, or at least stymie his his general election or his um, chances of winning the nomination. And so that's the thing to consider. Now, the real thing to move on to is the fears that Trump is going to be a dictator coming from liberals. And Trump is hyping it up himself to troll liberals. There was a big article in Washington Post written by um, neo, the neoconservative Robert Kagan, who's a big guy and involving and advising the Bush administration and championing the Iraq war and all this stuff. And he's, you know, considered a serious uh, intellectual force, you know, an, a neocon intellectual. And he wrote this whole article about how Trump can be a dictator. And, he, you know, the whole article, there's actually a lot of good points. Actually, if you're reading this as a Trump fan, you'd probably be like, this is awesome <laughs> the whole time. Some of it is very accurate. A lot of it is hyperbolic in what Trump can do. So what he's accurate about is like describing the primary. He's like, it's over. Trump is the nominee. True. And then he's seeing in the general election. He's like, he's doing very well in polling. Biden is seeming declining in support. And he's Biden doesn't have a real message. And that's why you can see why Trump is gaining on him. And he's also saying that the American public no longer sees Trump as a great unknown or something that they, you know, too wild and chaotic for them to go back to. They remember the Trump presidency. You know, it, it did not live up to liberal hysteria before. You know, they were predicting you'd be the Fourth Reich, uh, all liberals in concentration camps and stuff. And this is like legitimate stuff that people who are writing for mainstream news publications are. Some people always share this screenshot of Matt Iglesias and Jamel Bowie. Matt Iglesias at the time was a slate editor. Uh, now he's just, I think, writing on his own on Substacker, but he's a respected uh, pundit. And Jamel Bowie, who I think also was writing for Slate at the time, but is now a New York Times columnist. And they're predicting that there'd be mass pogroms and lynchings uh, and a Trump presidency. And um, that didn't happen at all. So people are, you know, they're not like, wow, this is too wild and crazy for me to even contemplate. They're just like, well, I remember Trump, but, you know, much better economy, uh, seemed like the world was a less chaotic place. Um, why don't we go back with Trump? So people, and so Kagan makes that argument. And, you know, then Kagan goes on to what he might do. And he really, Kagan, this is where it gets hysterical. And some people may uh, think this is a good thing that Trump can do, but I actually am very I'm skeptical about uh, how Trump can do this. And he thinks that Trump can easily take over the government and use it to go after his political enemies. He can use, he'll utilize the DOJ to arrest all critics. You know, it was even saying like um, people who would oppose him in the Republican Party may get arrested. Uh, people in the news media criticize him may get arrested. Uh, I know some fans would be like, that's awesome. But uh, I, I'm a little skeptical he will be able to use the DOJ for this means and he also says that he can uh, evoke the insurrection act to go out if there's like protests or arrest protesters uh, mass protests of them and using the military and other things and um i you know to not to pour cold water on this but i am he is gonna trump in a second term is gonna have a i'm gonna go with what the positives of trump can do that he wouldn't be able to do in the first term Trump is going to be more focused on the issues that matter, and that's going to be immigration. Immigration, Their immigration policies from 2019 onward were very, very good. And he, there was a decrease in legal immigration during his time. And you can even look at this like the refugee resettlement 
they're taking it. You know, Biden or Obama was about to accept over 100,000 refugees per year in his last term. And then Trump lowered that to only 15,000 in his last year. So that's a huge uh, immigration decrease. And there's just immigrants were just afraid to come here. Uh, do the travel ban, do the fear, you know, the hysteria whipped up about Trump that he'll deport them and they'll be, you know, second class citizens and everything. They were just didn't come here. And so he was able to terrify them as the fear factor that was able to drive them away. And there was that fear factor in illegal immigrants, because if you look at the numbers, like it was well under, you know, for most of the Trump years, it was well under 50,000 per month of illegal immigrants being encountered at the border. And most of them, unlike Biden, were deported. The uh, Now it's like over 200,000 illegal immigrants at the border, and, and they're not being deported at all. So the first thing to do would be to clear out those illegal immigrant population on Biden. And really, it's just a massive uh, matter of mass raids, uh, immediate deportation upon encounter, it is really just drilling into their heads like the uh, the party's over. It's time to go home. And a lot of them, I think, will will go home when they realize that they're not going to get their welfare benefits and they may get deported back to wherever they came from. So it'll be pretty easy to do. Most will just self-deport if you make conditions for them staying here so hard, so tough that they're just going to leave. And I think he will be uh, successful in that. And he'll be able to find ways to strengthen the standards for legal immigrants to come, you know, making sure that they can't have welfare, which he was doing in the latter years of his first term. So he'll be very effective on immigration. Then there'll be a new travel ban and a lot of other stuff. Of course, some of this will be challenged in court, but a lot of this stuff he did in, you know, the first term, you know, remain in Mexico, what else do you want to name, you know, stuff, stuff that was uh, making it harder for illegal immigrants and measures that was making it tough for illegal immigrants are going to be upheld in court. So he'll be able to do this. They just need to implement it on day one, which they probably will if Stephen Miller is chief of staff, which I think they will even if chief Stephen Miller is not chief of staff, but he's likely to be chief of staff. And so that's, that's, and I think when it comes to foreign policy, it's going to be less insane. You know, if Ukraine war is still going on, they will have a peace deal there. I really, he really doesn't like Zelensky as over the Ukraine phone call and Zelensky, you know, not really helping him out when he first time got impeached. And I do think he feels that Zelensky is going to be on team Biden. And I have a feeling that Zelensky is going to be like campaigning for Biden, uh, which is going to ensure that no, he doesn't get any funding. So I think, you know, Trump will solve that situation. I think he'll just solve a lot of other world situations. So on foreign policy, immigration, that will be that. And when it comes to DEI stuff, there's already those executive orders that they were doing banning critical race theory. There are other people coming up with other orders that they can do to really eliminate this anti-white indoctrination that it will be for civil servants and that could be funded. Um, for the universities, I think that they're going to cut that off. I, they're going to have a real game plan to go after that. And I do think that they're going to make it tougher for the, a lot of these career bureaucrats to stay around who were uh, helping to derail the first term and make it harder for Trump to do things. I think he will be able to push a lot of these people out and put good people in. So all on those fronts, I think he's going to be 
Um, fine. And I think that's going to be some real achievements. Now, when it comes to the political enemies thing, uh, that's going to be the one really tough thing for Trump to do. Uh, Trump is going to want to do this, but Trump is going to have a tough time finding people to implement this. And you might say, well, they can get Anons in there. And it's like, he's not going to pick, uh, you know, um, Pepe Fuhrer 1488 for to run the DOJ. He's going to have to find someone who can make it through a Senate confirmation hearing. And it, it's going to be very tricky for someone to make it an attorney general uh, Senate confirmation, even with a Republican majority in the Senate. And he's just going to, you know, there's going to be a tough time for that person to get through because there's going to be enough Republicans who are going to be like, I'm not voting for this guy because he says he's going to uh, arrest like, you know, Biden, Fauci. I don't know who else would be on that list. There's got a long line of people. Jack Smith, you know, the judges overseeing Trump's cases. You know, there's probably going to be a long list of people that Trump wants arrested. And I think a lot of times, you know, Senate's going to balk at an attorney general who would promise that. and Or the implication that an attorney general would do that. And I think also what they're seeing with a lot of the legal problems of people who were around Trump in 2020, you know, with them all being charged with stuff. I think there's also going to be a hesitation for people to go along with this because they realize that, you know, if the term ends, they may be going to jail. So I think that's going to be, and also DOJ, they're not, these liberal lawyers who are in there are not going to retire to let, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, griper attorney to take over or, <laughs> you know, Pepe attorney to take over. You know, they're not going to allow that those people, they're going to stay on because they know they're, they fear that Trump is going to just go uh, crazy on this, which he should. But I'm just saying that there's going to be a lot of institutional hurdles for Trump. And that's another thing that Kagan just doesn't, you know, acknowledge. Like, there are so many institutional hurdles to for Trump to get thing to go full on dictator. I mean, the best example of this is in 2020, you know, during the BLM riots, Trump wanted to use the military against the riots. And what did the military do? do? It told the, mil- the military told Trump, we can't do that. It refused orders. It refused to send troops to where he wanted them. And the fact the military did this and like General Milley was proud of it you know, indicates that, you know, it's going to be tough for him to use the military. The intelligence community, look at what they were doing the entire time during Trump's administration. They were trying to overthrow him and and overturn the election. You know, that's what most of the FBI was doing. It's going to be very tough for them to clean house in like a year so he can then use the FBI and military to uh, go after enemies and be and accept to be, you know, being used in an insurrection act. I don't think he's going to... That's going to be very tough for the built-in institutions like that. I think when it comes to the administrative state and some of these career bureaucrats, I do think that they're going to they're going to chisel at it and get some and get some of those people out, some of the worst people out, and make it a lot easier to bring in better, uh, more right-wing people. So I, I'm optimistic about that, or just shrinking the size of the stuff so it would make them less important. I, I am confident he can do that, but in some ways, when it comes to to be a dictator, you need the intelligence community, you need the military, and you need the media on your side too. You need these three things on your side. And he is not going to have those three things on his side. And the media is going to whip up in hysteria like they did before. As you can see what they're trying to do with Dick, uh, Trump Dictator 1.
our dictator on day one, what she's joking about, and everyone's now turning to me. I think it's funny. It's a good way to trigger uh, liberals. I think he will get a lot of things done on day one. So it'll be uh, really exciting to see when he becomes president, uh, what he does on day one and some of the good things there. But it, when it comes to all the the talk about him being a dictator, etc., and that and that type of matter, this is really the media trying to whip up Trump derangement syndrome again to sell newspapers because the news media is in a lot of trouble. CNN, Washington Post, all these big outlets are you know hemorrhaging staff. A lot of the newer media outlets are you know, ghosts of what they were, you know, BuzzFeed has gotten rid of its whole staff. I don't even know if BuzzFeed is still around. Actually, BuzzFeed News was shut down earlier this year, showing how all the new online media, which which was seen the future during the Trump years, and especially before then in the 2010s are no longer there. You know, Vice has been downsized significantly. All these outlets are just, you know, and it's tough to create new media outlets, and even if you look at the tone of a lot of these newspaper articles, it's very different in how they're covering Trump. But they're trying to bring back the like he's a dictator. But if you're reading like New York Post or New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN, and and especially watching the coverage of Trump, it was like Trump who is a dictator. You know, it'd be like a straight news article: Trump who is a racist. Trump, who wants to exterminate immigrants, you know, it'd be like a straight news article and they would have this insane stuff in there. And you really have to read only Wall Street Journal was like not offering the hyperbole and straight news. And also the news coverage of CNN and MSNBC was outrageous. I mean, CNN was claiming that Trump is exterminating the American people by not ending COVID. You know, they had the death tracker on there, which is done to encourage people to vote for Biden. And, of course, after the election, they stopped doing the death tracker, which people noticed. And I think they brought it back to show that they were uh, not so uh, obviously partisan. But, yeah, it's uh, they were really, you know, they were it was uh, every day was like a new catastrophe and chaos and shrieking and hysteria. I mean, you know, Trump could it was literally Trump would eat ice cream and there'd be a. there was actually a time when there was a week-long scandal on how many scoops of ice cream Trump eats. And it was like two scoops of ice cream. And they're like, this is outrageous and this is dictatorship. Legitimately. And so they were able to hype this up because they were able to get more viewers, more subscribers. You know, Washington Post was exceeding its subscription, you know, was getting record levels of subscribers. And so we're at magazines like The Atlantic. But now that's all changed. They've all been in serious decline. And they are going to try to whip up Trump derangement syndrome again. But I don't know if it's going to work this time. I think that a lot of the American people are drained of that hyper-politicization that they were were involved in in the late 2010s. I don't think that they can get the people to be as worked up about Trump as they were before. Now, if he wins, I think you will see a lot of protests. You will maybe you will maybe see people whipped up into a frenzy again. But during the election, I don't think it's going to be quite the level that we saw in 2016 and 2020 on the news media coverage and Trump being a dictator. I mean, they've tried this before. I mean, in the midterms, there was this ridiculousness where it's like democracy might end in November. And, you know, democracy did not end, but you know, they kept insisting it might end. 
Um, that there were, and the, all these people that get experts to come on is like, we may no longer have democracy on Tuesday. And, you know, there, there was this concerted effort to pretend like that. But I, I feel like, you know, ever since then, they have not been able to do it as much. And fewer people are watching the news. Fewer people are buying into this stuff. So it's going to be a harder time to sell it. Now, when he gets into power, they are going to try to do it again. It probably will be there. But it's also the news media. The news industry is completely different from what it was in his first term. And it's going to be a much different paradigm that's being proposed or the what's facing Trump when he's going to be in office. And so I'm not I'm a little bit skeptical that they can they can do this a second time around because the American people, I just aren't just not as interested. And I also think it was driven a lot by millennials and Zoomers seem to be a lot more apolitical than millennials or at least as they're growing up i mean yeah they are getting more zoomers to um get involved you know they're trying to get them you know voting and stuff and the abortion issue is promote is getting some zoomers to vote but i think it's they're they're not quite the way that millennials were in the 2010s you know there was the occupy wall street was very millennial all the people worrying, worked up about Black Lives Matter and doing the type of hashtag activism and stuff. That was a very millennial trend. And there was, and also is activating, you know, Gen X, wine moms, and others who will still be there. But I think for the millennials, you know, they burned out. Maybe a lot of them have married and got kids and they're not as focused on this. And Zoomers are just focused on TikTok and you know, streamer culture and stuff. Maybe the streamers are really into, you know, anti-Trump and other things. Maybe they'll uh, be politicized in that. I mean, Zoomers are very left-wing, or at least in what they tell polls and what they vote for, but I don't think as they're as politically engaged of a generation as millennials were, which is what was driving a lot of the hysteria towards Trump, as well as Gen X wine moms. Um, so our wine ants more like it, but you're going to have, so we'll see what happens with it. I don't know, you know, cause there's other things that you've seen a decline in like remember Antifa. I mean, Antifa is still around, but Antifa is just not like it was in the, you know, Trump presidency. I mean, it was very big. It was very involved. You know, it was like Antifa protests all the time. I mean, we'd still see them out. I mean, they're, you know, they'll come out to when conservatives are protesting drag queen story hour, they'll have their AR-15s there guarding the, the drag queens or whatever. And they're still, you know, you can see what's happening in Atlanta, but they're not quite to this, you know, the popular force that they were in Trump and the Trump administration. Now, all this may contribute to Kagan's theory that there will be few impediments and obstacles to Trump becoming a dictator, which is not the case. I think, you know, he's not looking at it, the government institutions and how much he can order uh, certain people around and how much they can resist him. I think there's a much, as demonstrated by his first term, there's a, a large degree of resistance that they can do. And it's also just like projection because this worry is like, oh, they can arrest enemies without any uh, fear of what consequences. It's like, what is Biden doing? Biden is arresting. So, like, look at what's happening in J6. Look at what's happening to Trump. This is like real political persecutions. And they're like, oh, my God, just imagine what Trump will do. It's like they've arrested like over 1,200 people for over J6. They're arresting, you know, look at all the charges they're throwing against Trump. 
look at all the stuff that they're doing. I mean, even, you know, they first day they get in the White House, you know, they charge Ricky Vaughn with and they're trying to charge other people like for similar crimes like that. So they've, you know, they've obviously politicized the Department of Justice to, you know, go after the enemies of liberals. So this is already happening. You know, this is not, um, you know, there's no real, real fear here. This has already been happening. And it's just like, oh my God, Trump might do this. It's already happening. It's not that, well, it is a big deal, but it's something that they're projecting on their own side. But it, that that's always the fear I have that when they always talk about red versus blue Caesar or something, is that that can happen is that it's going to, it would be very hard for a right-wing dictator to take uh, power in the near future. And I'm talking like this decade in the next, maybe in the next 10 years, there could be something wild that could happen. Like a far, as I always talk, there could be a far left movement that really threatens people. And then they turn to a right wing authoritarian in that, um, that's going to take a while. So I'm talking about within this decade, it would be more likely that you could have a blue Caesar because you would have, it'd be easier for them to have the military intelligence community and the news media on their side to get these things done while those three are going to be opposed to a right-wing leader you would have to require something that terrifies the military and the intelligence community so much that they will support a right-wing authoritarian which uh, that situation isn't arising yet but um, if you have all three opposed to you it's very tough to be an authoritarian ruler but the blue caesar thing you know what he's writing about you know, if there was a very charismatic, less scrup, you know, very unscrupulous leader who was a Democrat came to power and he f could pretend that there's an imaginary white nationalist or right wing extremist menace. And this is going to require hate speech laws and and, you know, further federal power and even maybe some type of gun control. You know, a, a Democrat could more easily get this done and it require like arresting elected officials and stuff which the one thing the federal government or at least the states who are investigating this stuff have held off on is is charging some of these congressmen involved with these uh involved who were helping out with trump with stop this deal i mean they did think about doing that in georgia with the current lieutenant governor uh but they held off. I guess they don't want. They feel that that's a that's a step too far to be charging actual officials who are you know currently in office to go with that measure. But they are considering it. They're open to taking that step. Which uh, the people are like, this is pro democracy. But then they're like, I can't believe Trump would ever contemplate this stuff. Which we would only be learning from Democrats. Now in Trump's legal matters. He, they're looking a lot better than they were earlier this year because he really, it looks like he's only going to have one case that may actually reach trial before the election. The Georgia trial is going to be delayed or is not going to happen in 2024. The uh, attorney general there has already said that. He's probably going to get the documents trial delayed until after the election. He'll have a good case there. The judge there really wants to delay it anyway, and they're going to probably delay it when they have the scheduling conference in March. The real question is the J6 Stop the Steal case in D.C. That has a very liberal black judge who is not willing to grant anything to Trump, but they are figuring out ways to 
you know, delay the trial. They're trying to, you know, have it thrown out and go to a higher court to get do this. So I, there are ways for them to delay it. If they do get that delayed, then he won't have any trials for 2024. And if he doesn't have any trials, uh, you know, and so, some of the thing is like Kagan in the article is like saying he wants these televised so he can make a mockery of our justice system. I don't know if it would be very good for Trump to have these uh, as the primary news story, but who knows? Maybe, maybe it would actually help him out. But it would be much better for him to not have these trials. And if he doesn't have a trial and doesn't have a conviction, he has over 50% chance of winning the 2024 election. Uh, Biden is, it's probably going to be get worse for Biden. I think American people are like, well, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, the, the indictments haven't bothered the public as much as the people thought in polling. And polling shows this. And, you know, I don't know what Biden's message is going to be for 2024. You know, they're going to highlight how he's under indictment. But maybe most people will then think it's a political persecution. And if there's no indictments and no convictions, I think they would be more inclined to vote for Trump. Now, if there is a conviction, uh, it's hard to say how that much effect. I mean, the, the best guess, it would make it more difficult for Trump to win. Uh, he won't be. I don't think he will be in jail uh before the election because of just appeals and also the fact that he's like a former president they have to operate this stuff they have to go over this stuff with the secret service uh, i just don't think he will be in jail and even if he does get convicted he's like either going to be face a house arrest or they give him his own jail they're not going to put him in a supermax okay <laughs> they're not going to do that to the f uh, former president and the secret service secret service would never agree to that and it's like secret service is going to share a jail cell with Trump. That's just not going to work. So that's the um, that's the thing that's going to be with it. So if so, he it's, that's looking a lot better for for Trump right now. And that's something to keep in mind, because I always think his legal problems are his biggest hurdle in the campaign. And if he can push those back outside of the election, beyond the election, then he will probably win. Now, who will Trump pick for his VP? That's a, you know, it's getting a lot of attention because there's some articles saying that he should pick Tucker. Um, I'm still a little bit skeptical of that, but I do know that that's a real, that is a possibility this time around. It's it's not out of the realm of, it, it's, it still could be something that happens. I don't know if it will, um, but there's other candidates. There's like the boring candidate he chooses, which is just a, standard woman Republican, what she says he would do. And the two for the two candidates for that in the top position would be Christy Nome, governor of South Dakota, and Elise Stefanik, who's a New York congresswoman. <clears throat> Stefanik had a big uh, had a big week last week grilling these uh, university presidents on their anti-Semitism and demanding that they condemn anti-Semitism and they could fail to do so. And so she got a big media moment from that. Uh, I think some of her fans, uh, some of the listeners would not be happy with her being chosen <laughs> for that reason. But who knows what Trump's reasoning would be here. Uh, Noam endorsed Trump in a very big public way at a rally to you know, really signal that this is an important move for Trump and that she would hope to get a reward from Trump. And so those would be the two top picks if he decides to be boring and just go with, you know, what he thinks is like a younger woman.
Now, if he goes with interesting, the two top, top candidates for that would be Vivek and Tucker. And I think I would I would say Vivek has a better shot of it because Vivek is on the up and up. You know, he's running in the presidential primary. He's a strong Trump defender. He's seeing, he's seeing him as a guy who will go above and beyond to defend Trump, which Tucker is now becoming more of a Trump guy. But I think he realizes Tucker is, is his own independent creature and he won't be as much of a cheerleader or uh, as you want in a position like running mate. So I don't know if he would actually choose Chuck Tucker. And he may also just think like Tucker is now just a podcaster or whatever. And he may want to pick someone else in that regard. But he could still pick Tucker. And that would be the interesting choice. And then he could just pick a politician who's a man uh, who is um, maybe just adds to his campaign. And one of those people is J.D. Vance. There's some there's some downsides to that because you know JD Vance is the most exciting candidate and there's some you know he was very anti-Trump in 2016. There is a degree of skepticism about Vance, but on all the issues that we care about, he's very solid on. You know he's talked about great replacement and anti-white racism, and he really gets his stuff on foreign policy and 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 other matters. So he would make you know policy-wise, he'd be very good for a VP pick. I don't know if that would, and maybe it would add a nice balance, you know, just a kind of toned down, uh, a little bit boring kind of guy to add some, you know, level off Trump, I guess. It's like Trump is a little, you know, wild and crazy, and it's maybe he needs a straight man there to, you know, bring him down to earth to say like, uh, you know, as as the person to do that, you know, there there is, I think Pence did help him in 2016 with that pairing. And maybe you could have somebody who's like, you know, fully on board with the Trump agenda, but is has a much uh, low key, much lower key style than Trump. Maybe that could add a benefit to the Trump ticket. So I think there's some interesting picks and there could be some others, but probably right now, those are the five people he's most likely to pick. He's definitely not going to pick DeSantis. Uh, he is actually allowed you if you're running from the same state, which I think Trump is running from Florida this time rather than New York. You can you can actually pick a vice president from the same state. Uh, you're running mate from the same state, but I don't think that has anything to do with. He has a real grudge against DeSantis. He's not going to pick him, and he likes the fact that he's destroying him. He's not going to pick him. It's and the good news is he's not going to pick Nikki Haley, even though he's like said like I might pick a woman or a minority to be my candidate, and she's both. He really doesn't like Nikki Haley, and he's been attacking her a lot. Um, and he just really has it out for those who are running against him and are not in the uh, primary and are you know either criticizing him or not showing enough support. Vivek is, Vivek is the one exception. He also liked Tim Scott. You know, people wonder if Tim Scott would be there, but I think he realizes Tim Scott would not be the ardent defender of him that he would want for his running mate. And Tim Scott is just not going to be that either. And so I don't think he's... And I think he saw how poorly he performed in the primary and realizes that he's probably not the guy to go with. Tim Scott and Nikki Haley would be the worst possible uh, picks. Um, and then Tucker and Vivek would probably be the best possible picks. I don't know. Maybe Vance. And you could put Vance in there. Uh, so it depends on what your viewpoint is. Uh, so, 
I, it's too early to tell. I think it's still going to be he's going to be boring and pick either Stefanik or, or Gnome. But things may change. Maybe he gets convicted and maybe he just wants to run a different campaign. So he could, get, he could go with a wild, a wild card pick. So still, uh, still remains to be determined who he will pick. So that's it about the Republican primary or what's going on in the presidential election. Now to move on to the next big conservative story, probably going to be brief on this, is their demands. Conservatives are demanding that universities start restricting speech. And that was the whole point of the hearing with the university presidents last week, where they were demanding, you know, Republicans and a few Democrats and Democrats were well. We're demanding these universities come down hard on criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism. And they are being pushed into this by big time donors who all ignored anti-white racism, which is active, which is actively promoted by the university. This is a huge difference between this is something that has to be remembered is that anti-white racism is taught and is enforced on university campuses. The anti-Semitism, the anti-Israel stuff is all just coming from students and random professors. They are allowed to have their own political opinions. And it's essentially coming down and saying students cannot say certain things. Meanwhile, the anti-white racism, it's coming from the administrators themselves. You know, they're putting on, you know, they're teaching these kids this stuff. They're putting on these lessons about checking your white privilege and, you know, and also, you know, trying to have their own form of racial quotas, even though they are being limited by the Supreme Court and what they can do now with that. But this is like actual policy. Anti-white racism is actual policy by the universities. The anti-Israel, anti-Semitism stuff is not policy. And so they're essentially being punished for what their students are doing and not coming down hard on them for most of what is just constitutionally protected speech. As like some of the universities were trying to make, they made it ineptly at the hearing. But that was the point that they were trying to make. But very few people were wanting to come to defend the defense of the administrators because they gave such a, you know, uh, wild example of what they could say is like, do you believe that the, you know, Jewish people should be exterminated or something? And it's like, obviously, very few people are going to defend that statement, even if it's constitutionally protected. So that was and they're now pushing these people out. And some people are like, oh, this is a big victory and stuff. But in fact, it's just going to make these universities more censorious, especially towards right-wing opinions, because they can now say like, oh, this person's talking about race or immigration in a certain way. That's that's a call for extermination. So you're not allowed to do this. And Penn is at the center of this of this firestorm over this. You know, that was the first president to resign. There's probably going to be others. And there, there's a professor, Amy Wax, who's under you know, a lot of scrutiny and is under a lot of pressure. They're trying to get rid of her for talking about race and immigration in a way that you're not supposed to and for inviting Jared Taylor to give talks to her class. And now if they're going to implement new standards, which are going to be addressed to, you know, ensuring that everyone feels safe and that no one, that everyone has their own little safe space on university campus, particularly against anti-Semitism and anti-Israel, uh, criticism of Israel, then that will also include the right for these left-wing students to go after any professors of the sort of like Amy Wax, or even just professors who are, don't go as far as Amy Wax, but maybe say they oppose illegal immigration or stuff. Now they can get rid of, 
rid of them, saying that they're wanting extermination of illegal immigrants and they're not allowed to have these opinions. So it's going to be, make campuses even worse when it comes to free speech, uh, particularly speech done by conservatives are those on the right. So I don't know what the, uh, the big victory here is. And also some people are saying this is like a huge win is like this should be pushed. But a lot of them are being, a lot of the Jewish donors who are pushing this stuff are being satisfied with just adding Jews to the uh, rainbow coalition of just saying that they're a protected class too. And they're going to be uh, included within the DEI administration of these universities. And a couple of places are doing this, like University of Michigan is doing that. And really what they're just doing is expanding the DEI system within the universities. And now they're just adding Jews as one of the, specifically adding Jews to one of the uh, protected classes under that rubric. And so that once again, makes the problem even worse, makes campuses even more hostile to white conservatives and makes them more likely to practice anti-white racism. They're just going to make sure that there is no criticism of Israel or Jews now when they're attacking whites as villains. And so I don't know how this is a big win. So this is always something I've always worried about the conflict is that like the three things we always need to worry about is no war, no immigration, no censorship. And the no censorship line is uh, being failed by conservatives and the rush to punish universities. And yes, these universities suck. And a lot of these presidents are horrible, but really the demands we're making is that we want you to censor more and we want you to add Jews to the DEI rubric to specifically add them to it. And a lot of the, this is what a lot of the universities are going to do. Rather than chipping away at the DEI system and the DEI tyranny, they're just going to expand it and unfortunately, a lot of people, especially what Republicans are championing is like, oh, look at what's happening to these Jewish students. They're all going to be accepted and be like, wow, we really took hit back at the liberal universities. But in fact, it's not turning out that way. So I just want to give some brief thoughts on that. I have a few I have two other topics to talk about before I get to the kindly. The next topic is Taylor Swift. Yes, we haven't uh, done a topic on this before. I probably could do a whole episode on Taylor Swift and her meaning. And I am trying to write an article about this. I don't think it, it may have to wait till next week, but it's not like Taylor Swift is going away as a news topic. Next, uh, or Taylor Swift is named Woman of the Year or Person of the Year by Time Magazine. People are critical of it, saying like, oh, she shouldn't have been it. Probably is. I mean, she really did turn herself into the biggest entertainment figure of our age. And I mean, her concerts were major cultural events. It was like the Super Bowl going around the country and the amount of people who are attracted to it. And it was like made over a billion dollars. I think that's just domestically. I don't know if that might be the tour, including international sales, but I think it might have just been domestically. So that's how like big of a deal it is. Her music's everywhere. She is the biggest cultural figure in our society. And so she represents a lot. And it's probably give an expression of what Taylor Swift is, is that she is an avatar of middle class white people, particularly white women. And there are like positives to Taylor Swift. I think a lot of conservatives are focusing on the negatives because she's now become very liberal. She promotes liberal causes. She supported Biden in 2020 and she decided to become political in 2018 to help out uh, Democrats in Tennessee. It didn't work out though. And people are worried that she's going to turn into a major Biden promoter in 2024, which she, 
she will endorse Biden and support Democrats, but whether she devotes herself to it, uh, that's another matter. I mean, she mainly does care about making sure her music and her brand remain as popular as ever and becoming full on Democrat um, shill would maybe cut into that. So I don't know if she will do that. But as what she represents, there is uh, something to go over. So here are the pauses about Taylor Swift. One, she doesn't have any tattoos. <laughs> she exclusively dates white men, generally uh, somewhat respectable white men. I mean, now her current boyfriend's a wigger, but he's a football player. He's uh, he is not a rapper or a drug dealer or some sort. So I, you know, generally uh, that's positive. Her music is relatively wholesome and appropriate for people. I mean, in terms of lyrics and other things. Now, her lyrics are not about gratuitous sex and promiscuity, really. It's generally just her bitching about an ex-boyfriend. I guess that's fine. Here it is compared to other pop stars. I mean, if you compare to like Ariana Grande, you know, Ariana Grande has uh, transmogrified into a person of color. All her songs are extremely sexual. And uh, she dates primarily rappers. So if you compare her to Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift is much more respectable, much more clean cut, um, much more family friendly uh, artist. I think that's why she's big is that she is. Her music is very inoffensive and her herself does represent someone who upholds bourgeois standards of how you're supposed to be. You know, she's not having any ridiculous tattoos of any sort or doing bizarre hair uh, hair stylings or of anything so she is that and that's uh i think that's what a lot of people have and she's extremely white coated despite just not only being white but the fact she's like tall blonde hair uh they that's why they always get mad at her because it's she is extremely white and prior to her turn to politics is that there was a lot of anger at her for not getting involved in politics people were very mad about it, that she did not get involved in the 2016 election and at that time there was an alt-right meme about how she's alt-right and people loved making taylor swift accounts and stuff uh, alt-right taylor swift accounts and memes so there was that whole thing at that time with that and so she's very much hated um by a lot of black entertainers. And that was the whole point of when Kanye interrupted her years, years and years ago. It was about like saying that this belongs to a black woman and you're taking it away from us and you, you white woman. And so that was, uh, I was a part of the, uh, that was, you know, that was when she was first starting to get big in the early 2010s. Interesting political trajectory of those two. Uh, Kanye West is, um, or yay, as he's now uh, called, is um, probably going to go back to supporting Trump. I don't think he's running for president anymore, so he's probably going to go back to supporting Trump. And he supported Trump, uh, you know, I think in well, he was running it. He was running in 2020, but he's very pro-Trump, and he's still uh, pretty supportive of Trump. I I don't know. Well, I'm not quite sure what he is now, but I would imagine he's probably going to be pro-Trump in 2024. And then uh, Taylor Swift is a libtard. So uh, interesting trajectory on those two. But then there's the negative. I don't think her music, you know, let's teach their own. My music taste is very um, atypical for people. I'll say that. Uh, I don't find her music that engaging, especially compared to other pop. You know, even if you compare it to other pop singers that were really big, 
Uh, I would think like Madonna or something would be more, you know, grasp your attention more. It's kind of just like wallpaper music, in my opinion, uh, a lot of her music. And it's also combining all these different elements. It's, It's just a hodgepodge of everything that, you know, it's really like a corporation coming together to see like, oh, people like this. So we'll put this in, you know, there's rap elements, there's pop elements. There's a little bit of rock. Of course, there's still some country involved, even though she made her career in country. Not There's not as much country. And there's uh, some dance stuff, modern dance stuff. So it's like all comes together into this goofy white woman uh, that she's doing this. Taylor Swift is very basic. Uh, she is the uh, definition of basic. But people like, you know, they like basic. And so I think that's a part of her popularity. But I think another negative thing about her is that she is not a confrontational figure. Even though she herself stands aside a lot of what pop culture is. It's like very magical. It's very black. It's very degenerate. Very, uh, you know, filled with tattoos. Filled with uh, celebration of terrible behavior. Whether it's drug abuse or sexual promiscuity. She stands aside from that. But at the same time, she accepts that. Because... She, you know, she herself incorporates rap elements into her music. You know, she's not standing up as a defiant country music artist. She is somebody who deeply cares about supporting the political zeitgeist and the political structure of our of our system, you know, by endorsing Biden and endorsing others. And it does represent a what the white middle class is now, a college-educated whites are, is that college-educated whites and middle-class whites are continue for a lot of them are continuing to uphold the old bourgeois norms you know dressing respectably they're not getting involved in drugs and and other and other negative behaviors they're trying to be respectable citizens and you know they're not getting a lot of tattoos but at the same time they're starting to vote democrat they're starting to be more liberal and they're starting to accept the radical changes that are going on in our society but they just want to you know, be left alone to carry on their own standards, but they're not really that bothered by the changing society. You know, they're still in their polo shirts, but at the same time, the rest of the society is not in polos, and but they kind of shrug their shoulders and enjoy the rap music, and they vote for Biden. Most importantly, they vote Democrat. And so she does represent that of like what is going on with college-educated whites themselves is that they still, you know, if you go out in the suburbs, they still look like decent, upstanding citizens and elsewhere. But then you'll notice maybe they have a hate has no home here sign tucked away or they were really, you know, into Black Lives Matter. And of course, they're voting for Biden. And it's really that they see the changes around them that threaten their lifestyle and the way and their habits, but they come to terms with it, accept it, and embrace it. But they keep it at arm's length and arm's distance. And it's not a part of their sphere and not a part of their life, but they're okay with that being there and that being a part of America. And that's how, like Taylor Swift herself, she praises all these black artists and loves their music. And she does have hip hop beats occasionally in her music and has some hip-hop influence. So that's something that's a representative of her uh, with that. And there is kind of a thing with conservative. Conservative culture is like very different now. What like conservative coded is it's not so much more this nice, wholesome pop singer. It's, uh, you know, it's hip-hop artists who have face tattoos and stuff. You know, even Jelly Roll, who I think is pretty liberal, 
and he's now this big country artist who incorporates rap into his music and he's got face tattoos he's got grill he and he's like very conservative coded but he's like the complete opposite of what white middle class culture is and it's a rejection of it but that's now what's more conservative coded and so that's like an interesting thing that's happening in culture is that there's you know what's conservative coded is usually incorporating much more rap music is much more of an aggressive rejection of white middle class standards and by the way they dress the way they talk the way they operate so it's very vulgar in their music while something that's upholding the old kind of cookie cutter clean cut white middle class standard and taylor swift is now becoming liberal and accepting of these standards so that's uh of the of the new transformations that are going on in america so that's a interesting marker of what taylor swift is and represents in our country so she is just more than a pop singer i would want to say that so there's more thoughts on that. I'll, I'm trying to write an article about this. Uh, hopefully it's uh, done soon. But to the, for the final topic for Cognitive Elite is I have to give a few thoughts on homeschooling. Uh, I did have a, a you know a cheeky tweet last week. There's this uh, Republican congressman who has an OnlyFans daughter. It's becoming a political scandal. He actually got ahead of it to announce his daughter's on OnlyFans because he was afraid that this is going to be used against him. And... This backstory for this is that he, you know, was worried about the his kids' education, so he took them out of public schools and homeschooled them. And he was a devout evangelical. Him and his wife met at a Bible study, and then they had two kids and they homeschooled them. And one turned out to be an OnlyFans daughter. And this, I don't know if it's publicly available, but somebody people found like his son's Instagram, and his son is. Um, probably gay and he lives out in san francisco and he so that's like funny somebody i heard it some a joke is like you know there was this famous uh, there was this popular tweet that went viral it was like would you rather have a whore daughter or a gay son and this guy voted for both <laughs> so it's uh you have to wonder what went wrong there with home you know you know evangelical homeschooling which i'm not saying this is all homeschooling but i think it's it is a sign that there's a lot of what your kids are going to turn out to be is determined by genetics and also how you raise them. And sometimes, you know, if you have a good kid, he'll be fine in public schools. If you have a good kid, he'll be fine in homeschooling. And it's really just a personal choice depending on your situation and what you want to achieve. But believing that homeschooling is the total solution, uh, uh, there's a lot There's a lot of examples of homeschooling um, failures like that. Ella, everyone, who everyone hates, who's the... Uh, woman with like a thousand body with a thousand body count who has her own only fans and is in the tech world she was also uh comes from an evangelical family who homeschooled her and so there's like a couple of other examples but not i'm not saying that everyone turns out that way it's likely a minor it's definitely a minority but it does show that it's like not the foolproof way to you know protect your kids in the society we live in because all really what's going to happen is that Kids are going to interact with the internet and they're going to interact with the society that's there and the culture that's around them. And the only way to hope for is that you hope that these kids are smart about what's around them and they stick to their principles and are not, you know, tempted by the degeneracy around them. And that's probably the most you can hope for, for them to, you know, stay productive, good citizens and, and good people you'd want around. And that's, but... 
if homeschooling is the best option you think to do that, then more power to you. But if it's you think it's public school, you know that's your only option. Then there, uh, it's up to it's up to the parent. So I'm not anti homeschooling, but I do uh, whenever there's like something wrong in public schools. They're like it's homeschool your kid. It's like this is the only solution, and really it's not the only solution. In some ways, um, I'm a little bit critical of homeschooling. I think it depending on the situation, it may turn out to be a lot better. And you can point to examples how it's superior to public education. But there's a couple of reasons that um, there are some reasons to be uh, not as thinking as the greatest thing on earth. One, I think, is schools, normal schools, are important to socialize kids. And I already have is like, I don't want my kids socialized. It's turning them into degenerate. It's like it's more that just they're around people all the time. They learn how to deal with people. They learn proper social skills. And obviously, there are kids in public schools who don't learn those skills, uh, but that may just be a fault of them or they have autism or some sort. You know, there's a lot of things, but generally, kids need that environment where they're interacting with people all the time so they know how to deal with people, interact with them, have proper social skills. I think I know a lot of homeschools that are starting to solve that, and also a lot of people are getting their kids involved in sports, and that serves as a replacement for it. So if you have a way that it's like a replacement where they're, you know, going to homeschooling co-op where there's like 10 other kids or some sort and, you know, they're around them all the time and, you know, they're playing sports with other kids, you know, you'll probably solve it. But I do think that there is something that happens when they're not around that environment all the time. As generally, most of the homeschooling guys I've met, there's always been something a little off about them and they've had a hard time being one of the guys with the ones I've met. Um, and then the women, the main problem is that they turn into, um, <laughs> they kind of become, Ella. obviously not the majority, but there is a, there is an Ella type that comes. Once they're gone away from their parents, they let loose and um, the consequences are, are unfortunately tragic. So that's, a, that's one issue is like proper socialization. Homeschools can compensate for that in some ways. I think you do just have to have them involved with a lot of the kids. If it's just like solely, you know, you're on your little homestead, and it's just the kids themselves interacting with one another. Uh, it's probably there's going to be there likely is going to be a few issues there. The other problem is, is that one, we pay for public schools and I really don't like the way of just like giving it up. Now, some cases you have to give it up. You know, if you live in like a an urban environment where your kid's going to be uh, experiencing a lot of diversity, I understand the homeschooling. I think that's like a survival mechanism. But there's other ways where it's, you know, if you're like in a suburb and not in a blue, you know, in a red state suburb, you know, your school is probably going to be fine. In a rural area, it's probably going to be fine too. And I feel like the most people who are driven to homeschooling, their public schooling options are pretty decent. They still, there still may be reasons for that. Maybe there's a particular education. Maybe you're, you know, you feel that it's important to your religion that this is stressed to their kids more so than it's giving in public schools. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I think it's, in some ways, we're paying for this. And it's like another institution we're giving up and retreating from, which I don't really like. And schools, as we've seen over the past few years, they can take back schools and make sure the curriculum is a lot better through school boards, through, you know, protests at, at those meetings and you know taking control of the PTA there's a lot of ways to counteract these negative traits we see in the schools around us so those would be the the two big reasons um, 
to, to have a little, just a little bit of skepticism, but it still may be the best decision. I just don't think it's the uh, a magical elixir to solve all the problems. The funny thing about homeschooling, though, is now is that the biggest, uh, they were touting these studies, like the biggest uh, push for it is now among black families, and they're just pulling kids out of school, and uh, people are like, this is awesome. They're rejecting the government schools, which, in fact, it's a lot of them. It's just like black parents are just choosing not to send their kids to school, and they're claiming that they're homeschooling them, and nobody's going to go in and, and and ensure those kids are, are going to school. So that's a that's another funny thing that's thinking about homeschooling. But no, I'm not anti-homeschooling. I think it's depending on the situation. It may work better. Uh, it's all it's all up to choice. It's the same what I said about rural rural um, people moving to rural areas. If you want to move there, that's fine. And I'm probably less down on that on moving to rural areas because you can still operate within society and have, make an impact on society. It's not a full blown retreat like moving to the middle of nowhere. Uh, like homeschooling is and it may just be the best situation but I do think it is part of this general like idea of that we needed a retreat from everything and we go into our little hole and then we'll somehow gain power through that and it's like a lot of ways we have to be of the world and interact the world with where it is and sometimes you can't retreat from everything because we still live even though you may have the best homeschooling program imaginable, your kid could still interact with these ideas through the internet and just through the culture around them. And so a lot of this stuff is going to require massive cultural transformation and cultural changes to ensure that you know people are not falling into degeneracy and to the bad ways. There's things you can do to protect them, but you know a lot of this is the fault in the society we live in. And there's only so much you can do to insulate yourself from it. And now on for the Cognitively questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognitively option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. The first question comes from John. It comes from last week. It got in at the last moment last week and I did not get to answer it. And he wanted to ask for my thoughts on Nash Review. Do you think it's still worth reading given its history or is it both cucky and irrelevant? Yeah, it's not worth reading anymore. It's it's pretty irrelevant. The, the only reason to read it is to see what establishment Republican thinking is. Uh, one thing is that has been useful for reading it is to see how a lot of the legal conservative establishment or what who what type of institutions are going to come to Trump's aid with his political prosecution. And I've always pointed to Nash Review being very lukewarm about de, uh, denouncing the political prosecutions against Trump, against his legal issues, as a sign that, you know, maybe the Supreme Court and other higher courts may not intervene to help out Trump. So that's the only real reason to read it. But otherwise, it's like, you know, it's not very good commentary, not very good news analysis. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much worthless to read. Historically, it's not as bad as maybe the right makes it out to be. Um, it really just became bad under Rich Lowry in the late 90s, where totally, you know, worthless. You know, there is always cucky elements of it going back to its beginning. But in the 90s, you know, it had, you know, it was taking a really strong aim at immigration, you know, demanding immigration restriction. You know, Peter Brimelow was an important uh, writer there. 
Uh, you know, I was even publishing Steve Saylor and a few other people like that. And it still was publishing John Darbyshire up until the early 2010s when he got uh, let go for being too, uh, too uh, strong on the race issue. So, but with Lowry, it's been pretty much useless and worthless to read. So I would not read it. But historically, it's not as bad as we would say. I think there began elements when they got rid of Joe Sobern in the in the early 90s. That was indicating that we're, that Nash Review is not going to allow any criticism of Israel. And then when they got rid of Peter Bremelo in the late 90s, that was saying we're not going to address race openly and honestly. And those were the standards set, and that made it a much worse magazine. Going back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even into the 80s, I think it was a a much more worthwhile magazine. And there were a few, you know, alternatives. Uh, there were a few options like that out there. So if you're a right-wing person who's upset about the changes going on in America, you know, you, you didn't really have many other options than Nash Review. And it was okay for what it did. But over time for the last 20-so years, it's been worthless and not worth reading. So that'd be my opinion on it. But as, you know, John suggested, it'd be worth doing a whole IQ supplement on it. And I probably will. I'll try to find when there's a biography of Buckley that's not like um, a pay-on to him. You know, it's not a worshipful attitude towards, it's not a panegyric to Buckley, which has a lot of these conservative biographies of Buckley are. So I'll try to find something on that and read on it. And then we'll have a good podcast on it. It'd be much better for a liberal biography because they'd point out a lot of the things that Nash Review doesn't want to remember. And it does, Nash Review, a lot of the reasons why we think it's so bad is that Nash Review has its own revisionist history of itself, which makes it out to be more cucky and more establishment than it is because it wants to make it seem that the Nash Review of today is the same as it was in the 50s and 60s when it was not. So that's just something to keep in mind. Now we'll go on to K-Max. K-Max has two questions. The first question is about quarterbacks. Is that uh, sports question returns? The question is about the quarterback position in the NFL now. Our childhoods, it would be fair to say 90% of NFL quarterbacks were white and 100% of the star or Super Bowl winning quarterbacks were. Now it seems the position is 50-50, black to white. Will this get worse going forward or what is the cause of this? The running quarterbacks being promoted... Would a Greer rule be to support the white quarterbacks that just stop watching the NFL altogether? Well, as we on the last question, you know, we now allow watching the NFL, but I always support the white quarterbacks. I uh, no matter and if they're in a game against a black quarterback, I always support the white quarterbacks. So I have a lot of favorites. Uh, I love, I'm really liking Brock Purdy now. Uh, he's got a very white team around him in the 49ers. So I'm rooting a lot for the 49ers, even though I've never been a 49ers fan. It's just simply that they're a very white team. And a lot of their guys are like Trump supporters and conservatives. So uh, reason to support them. But why is this getting worse and why is it happening is that really what's happening with a lot of these high schools and you know pop, you know JV travel teams is that they are promoting the black quarterback cuz now the new type of offense is dependent on a quarterback who can run and throw and they generally think that the black kid is going to be uh, the best at that and so and colleges are recruiting for this as well i mean when i was growing up and this is still the case in the 2000s even the SEC was white majority quarterbacks now when there's a white quarterback in the SEC, you're like, whoa, wow, really? Hold the horse. What the hell is going on? We've got a, it's a white quarterback in the SEC. And you see this even throughout college football. I was even seeing Boise State had a black quarterback, which uh, they were usually a white team. 
Uh, but that's just the case is now that everybody wants a quarterback who can run uh, at the same time and get out of the pocket. And that's promoted heavily. And that's also another thing is this how like when football is promoted for teenagers in that level is that blacks mature quicker than whites. And generally for these high school teams that are wanting to be elite, they'll recruit black players to play these positions that would have gone to white players 20 years ago. And these are the star recruits. And so a lot of the best white quarterbacks are best white athletes. So, you know, there's a bunch of running backs and wide receivers. You know, they don't get any attention from college scouts. And it's just the black kids at those positions. And now that's starting to happen with the quarterback role as well. Because a lot of these white quarterbacks, you know, they may be pretty good in high school, but they haven't fully physically developed yet. Well, the black kid, you know, is fully physically developed. You know, they could see him work. You know, there's no more growth spurts that they have to worry about in, in college. And they're getting what they recruited when he was 18. And so that's a, that's a, that's a huge difference. And that's even the same with what, with like travel basketball, you know, AAU basketballs that they're so heavily black is because of this quicker physical mature, maturing under, on black athletes. So they're gonna, you know, some 14 year old kid, white kid, you know, he might be really short, you know, he's still really gangly, you know, he hasn't really, you know, still very awkward while the black kid is like fully physically developed. Uh, much quicker and so they'll start that kid because he's going to be clearly better but then the white kid maybe when he's in you know 19 or 20 he's maybe the better player but nobody gave him a chance and he might be playing at like some d3 school or some unknown school whether it's in football or basketball and scouts nfl scouts may never even see him transfer portal is helping out some of these white players there's a really good white defensive lineman for the uh, Florida State, who was getting a ton of sacks in their uh, ACC championship, and that guy came from some small unknown school, and he transferred over to Florida State, and he's like their best defensive player. So that happens a lot. Uh, but yeah, with quarterbacks, they now are stressing more that athleticism and the ability to run, and that's why there is this big push to get those black quarterbacks. But a lot of them aren't play, don't not play well down, down the line. You can see this in Deshaun Watson and some other. Some of these other black players, they really just have like five really good years at most. And then they begin to decline unless they, you know, mature into a more traditional type passer. But I still think the white quarterbacks are going to rise to the top. It's there's just going to be a lot more of them. But I think over longer term, it's still going to be a white majority position. One of the few. But it's, uh, you know, there's other positions that I would have never seen. Like I never saw white running backs and white wide receivers in the 90s and 2000s. And now there's a ton of them. And whites are dominating the tight end position as well. So uh, there's still, there's like, there's more whites in the NFL. There's a college football, or at least for the SEC. Uh, so that's an interesting dynamic going on there. Now for the second question from K Max, we've got a political one. He asks, it's about Vivek Ramaswamy, and he talked about Vivek talk, bringing up the Great Replacement theory last week, and he said the Great Replacement theory is not some grand right wing conspiracy theory, but a basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform. In your view, is this a huge breakthrough? What if the mainstream GOP said this but framed it as a voting issue? Tucker used to do this where they just made it. Democrats wish to replace America with new voters to win elections. Do you think this would be made? 
would be a more safe approach to bring up the issue. Yeah, I think it is a huge breakthrough, and that's the way that it's always going to be sold. And that's how most of the Republican politicians who've ever brought up the Great Replacement are that type of language have usually used it as the Democrats want to bring in new people here so they'll get more voters. And that's the easiest way to sell that to voters to, you know, that they can comprehend this, that this is a Democratic plot to win more elections and easier, easier to comprehend, easier to understand, safer to address this issue. And it is a part, basic statement of the Democratic Party's platform is true as well. So I think it is a huge breakthrough that a candidate would say something at a Republican presidential debate and to cheers, no less, that something that if even a conservative columnist in 2018 brought up that that person would get fired. Now you have Republican presidential candidates bringing up and as long with a lot of other Republican candidates as well. And so this is a major breakthrough. It's a major advance. And... Thankfully, Vivek is on the lead to doing this and to accomplishing this. So, yeah, I think it's a big deal. Some people may have wanted a, a more of an episode on this, but it's um, all you really can just say. It's really awesome that he's doing this. And I'm I think it's great that he's introducing this idea to more people and he's framing it in the way that makes it the safest, easiest to understand for the American public and for Republican voters to understand. So. Uh, yeah, I think it. I think it's all good. I think more Republican presidential candidates are, or rather, Republican politicians are going to say that. And I had an. And so there's another question from another person from Friendly Graper that also was a Vivek question, and it's like, what do you think of Vivek's political future? Is after Trump wins the primaries. Well, if you, the as I was talking about earlier in the episode, he could be the running mate. He, it's unclear what he may try to do. If if Trump wins and he's not the running mate, I think he will get a cabinet position. Which cabinet position? I'm not sure, but he will get a cabinet position. Secretary of Education would be a pretty cool job for him. I think that would be great if he was Secretary of Education or something like that. He'll probably get uh, something of, the, of that sort of that will be his role in the administration. Um, but if, you know, if Trump doesn't win I, and he, if he doesn't win the election, I'm not quite sure what Vivek will do. Vivek is like a huge conservative celebrity now he is a star from this so he could run for office somewhere they were wanting to you know there was a lot of talk about him running in the ohio senate but he chose not to run in the ohio senate he could run for congress in ohio he could you know he could do a lot of other things it's definitely going to be much more politically involved he could have his own show maybe fox news wants to hire him uh, that would be interesting. Maybe he would be the new Tucker on Fox News, which, and it would be a guy with an Indian name. So he's got a very bright future in politics. He just has to decide what he wants to do. Because unlike a lot, of the, a lot of these other people, he does have a much higher IQ than them. And he's much more articulate, much more charismatic in what he wants to say and go with this. He's um, He knows what people want to hear, too. And he's very... Um, He's very slick in how he gets these things done. He would be a terrific, he would be terrific with having his own cable news show. Um, hopefully, he'd be pretty good. But if he does, if Trump does win, 
if Trump wins a primary, he could be the running mate, or if he's not the running mate and he wins, I think he will get a cabinet position. So that would be my take on Vivek's political future. Now a question from Mystery. He always gives some good questions that we have. And he asked, Scott, what, are you, what, what should the dissident right make of FDR's racial views? I took him to be the first generation of blank slate ideology presence, but I recently discovered there is this is not the case from the article below. Article is narrowly focused on anti-Semitism, unfortunately, but it touches on broader racial issues. He didn't encourage immigration either, if I recall correctly. He did not. To have more color, the narrative I always heard was that FDR's lack of action on civil rights or related racial issues from a left-wing angle was because his hands were tied by Southern Democrats rather than his own indications or any desire to preserve Wasp America. If you know any books that go into this specifically, I'd like to read them. You recommended Fear Itself to me as a while back. It was excellent. Uh, I don't think, you know... It was actually just all segregationists for this. He didn't have very deep political beliefs. Uh, that's something to note about FDR. It was all about winning elections and what helped do that. I mean, when he was you know, when he ran for office, he ran on the opposite of what the New Deal is. He's like, we're going to have like uh, tax cuts and less government, and obviously we got the complete opposite of that for New Deal. He's very pragmatic, and it was just about what could gain the biggest much of power and political support for his agenda and on race and immigration the article that he mentions it that he linked to is a tablet article and the tablet article complains that fdr did not want to resettle all these uh, jews displaced by world war ii into the united states he wanted to look elsewhere in africa or south america for them he didn't want them to come in america and that was just him accommodating american public opinion american public opinion was harshly opposed to any immigration changes. They did not want any immigration. There was polling done saying that like the vast majority of Americans do not want any of these European refugees coming to the United States, regardless of the reason. And this, and he was just reflecting public opinion. And so all this stuff that the article mentions that there's some things that FDR says in the past, they point to some newspaper columns he wrote in 1925, supporting immigration restriction but that was just a smart political move everyone pretty much supported immigration restriction except for those representing immigrant areas immigrant districts in the united states everyone else was totally in favor of immigration restriction especially 1925 the year after the 1924 immigration act and he talks about how you know america should welcome in the right sort of immigrant generally implying northern europeans rather than the not good sort of immigrants. So I think he was just reflecting his time and place and his public views. I don't think he was very strongly concerned with racial views. And he any type of racism or immigration restrictionism that he evinced was just him accommodating and knowing where the electorate's at. And so it was more of a sign of what the electorate believed and what they stressed was important rather than his own personal views. And so that's some, that's the best way to see of FDR. And a lot of this was due to the segregationists. I mean, he had a lot of people who were advocating for integration and the civil rights regime and the New Deal, but he knew he couldn't push that because of Southern Democrat support, which was key to implementing his agenda. So he did not believe in that stuff very strongly. 
The next question comes from Dollar Bill. We've got a lot of questions today here, folks. And he's uh, talking about a question about apostates from conservatism. And he talks about Katie McHugh and others who seem like they're trying to uh, get big or adopt like liberal talking points. He brings up uh, Richard Spencer uh, to say that they're getting boosted by the Democratic Party. But I don't I don't think Spencer is like all over the place with what he wants. But he asks, what is what are your thoughts on people on the right who apostatize and become libtards? I like to point out that in every culture, traitors, turncoats, quizlings are widely reviled, even by the faction they defect to. They're really, we really don't have a huge amount of people to point to. There's like a few people who were on the fringes of the alt-right who then moved to the liberal uh, sphere. Some of them I can't remember. There's like some streamer who was really ugly, who had this real infatuation with some of these e-girls. I cannot remember his name. It was like Shr- I think it was David Sherratt. I can't believe that I remember this guy's name, but he was like vaguely alt-right and then he moved over to being a liberal and it nobody remembers him. So it doesn't really, that's not really a good example. Or it's that's like one of the few examples that I have, but it was, I think it's due to his lack of talent to become a big political commentator that he'd never even successfully moved over to the left. Uh, Hunter Avalon, uh, he sort of moved over to the left, but all these are like really streamers. They're not really quite part of the normal political sphere. And when you're a streamer, you can probably move in every direction you want as long as your fans stick with you. And maybe if you're not 100% political, it makes it easier. Uh, David Brock is probably the most famous example. David Brock was a conservative reporter who was, you know, attacking Democrats and liberals. And then he moved over and helped create Media Matters. Uh, that's probably the most successful example of of a turncoat. The biggest example of turncoats who have been successful of those who just never Trumpers who just totally moved to the left. I mean, Max Boot, Jennifer Rubin. David French still tries to claim he's like conservative, but not really. I mean, even if you look at Bill Kristol, he's now just like a huge Biden shill. And he's now welcome on MSNBC. And before when in the past, they would have seen him as a villain. And so some of these people have successfully transitioned into being liberals. Also, a lot of these never Trumper politicians, Republicans, uh, David Jolly, who's always on um I forget if he's mainly on MSNBC or CNN because I haven't watched cable news, but I can't remember. But he's always now he's like a full on liberal. He was like a conservative Republican lawmaker. Joe Scarborough is another example. So those are the type of people. There have been a number of conservatives who've moved to the left. And the left has been more welcome to has been very open about welcome these people in to their sphere uh, especially in the Trump years. So there's been a number of cases of that. But with somebody who's moved over from the dissident right to the left, uh, there's really not many examples. <laughs> uh, there's not really many examples because they'll accept people for being racist and stuff. And they'll like, well, they'll accept not for being racist, but for, you know, they'll accept them doxing people and writing, you know, I'm no longer racist and stuff, but they're not going to help them give them careers. And Katie McHugh learned that herself because, she she had no use. She was like not, not a good writer. She was a nut job, and she wasn't. She provided no utility for them besides doxing people. They were not going to let her have a writing career. And when she realized that, then she she had originally tried to return as a Catholic conservative, 
And then she realized that they were not going to give her any writing gigs. And then she turned into a full-on Antifa leftist. And, you know, after she had given all her docs and material, there was no longer any use for her. So there's not any real cases of, too many cases of this and right. But there's a lot of successful cases of conservatives moving over to the left. Which, whenever they say this, they're like, I didn't abandon the right, the right abandoned me. And... Uh, you know, I didn't change any of my principles. The right changed their principles, and then they move over. And the left is more than happy to have ex-conservatives are a strong conservative attacking Trump and attracting Christian nationalism and whatever they have to say about that. So there are a lot of successful examples, and you would think that, yes, turncoats are uh, reviled, but not in politics. It's actually, in some ways, a good way to uh, boost your career if you're that unscrupulous. Next up, we have a music question. We love the music questions. This comes from Bill. Bill asks, uh, a while back you included Black Sabbath's Paranoid in your top normie-friendly metal album list. I was wondering how you would compare Aussie-era Sabbath to the Dio era and which you prefer. I can appreciate the pioneer of the genre of the first few albums, but it seems to me their full potential was reached with Ronnie James Dio. I actually prefer, I prefer Ozzy Aero Sabbath. I think with Dio, Dio has its own, you know, it's almost a different band with Dio, but Dio, I think the Dio became the star of the band. And I think a lot of the riffs and all their songwriting diminished in response to that. I, the Ozzy Aero Sabbath outside of Ozzy himself, I mean, Dio's clearly a better singer, but the band was doing a lot more interesting stuff musically. I think their music was a lot sharper and stronger in that era and it was the response that they didn't have that good of a singer who carried them along and that was it but the dio the dio albums are a little bit more consistent because there's not like the weird stuff um uh like changes on volume four and this because it's like 70 era and they would love to incorporate all these rock bands would do like a a soft ballad and maybe they would have like a funk track or something Sabbath it wasn't as bad as some other bands in that, but there was always this like we've got to be more diverse and not everything sound the same. But with Dio era, it's like straight metal, and so it's a much more consistent album. But I think their better music is on Ozzy era Sabbath, while Dio he's clearly the much better singer. So that would be my answer to that. I love the music questions that we get. We have got still way <laughs> a lot more questions, and we still haven't even got to New England refugee yet. So I think this is the last one before New England refugees. So this comes from Fake Cell Eradicator. And he's wondering what's on the highly respected band book list. And, you know, he's wondering, he brings up Camp of the Saints and other things. I have a few items on the list that would be there that if you're just, it's like a matter of what you're trying to introduce normies to and what type of books to give them. I would say rather than a band book looks, I would go through Camp of the Saints. I'd go through Christopher Caldwell's Age of Entitlement. Uh, I would probably say Jared Taylor's White Identity and his Paved with Good Intentions. Pappy Cannon's Suicide of a Superpower. Um, I would, even if you go further, you go through Lothrop Stoddard's works. I would definitely recommend his stuff on, especially on the Haiti Revolution and his. Pretty much all of his books are... He even had a really good book on Islam. He was definitely ahead of his time. I would say he's more useful than Grant because Grant was really into the Nordicism. Madison Grant, of course. 
And I don't think that stuff is as relevant today. <laughs> While with uh, Lothrop Stoddard, it was just saying white and the language he's using, I think is a lot more relevant to our questions today. There was these books written in the Civil Rights era by Carlton Putnam, Race and Reason, and it was always like race and something else. They were very good, a very good introduction to this. A little bit dated, but we haven't really had the type of works that we've had now on that. Uh, there's a bunch of good race and IQ stuff from Ray, Richard Lynn and others. And asked specifically about Reconstruction, and I did a really good Reconstruction um, IQ supplement on a book that's it's now pretty much out of print. And that was his book, The South During Reconstruction, which gives you a much uh, more accurate picture of what the Reconstruction era was like. Uh, there's another book, great book on Reconstruction with the Tragic Era by Cloud Bowers that came out in the 1920s. It was a popular book then that can also be used. There really hasn't been the great civil rights revision that we have with Reconstruction with that. And you could see, you know, Caldwell's is the closest one, but there really is type of a need of a corrective to civil rights history and what it was really like. And we haven't really gotten that book. That book would require a ton of research and a lot of work. And unfortunately, there's no foundation to provide that funding and research or get a really highly competent historian to do that. They would do an opposite type of work. So we are missing on that. So there's a, just a ton. It's definitely a topic I would return to, again, maybe do a whole IQ supplement on the top 10 banned books to read or books that you need. Some of the books I did are not really banned. It's just like an introduction to our ideas. So I would I'd probably return to this for an IQ supplement. And now finally, to conclude with New England refugees, two questions. His first question is, do you have a prediction about the Senate next year? In my opinion, we're looking good and we'll probably end up with 52 after West Virginia, Montana, and Ohio Senate seats flip. And so my prediction, I'm confident that the Republicans will win the Senate. It's it will They will get at least 51 seats, regardless of whether they win the presidential election or not. House, House they, they could win the presidential election and still not win the House. The House is up in the air, especially because they're adding these black districts and and in the South, I don't know what's going to happen there. That's a that's that might be even more competitive than the presidential race. But with the Senate, yeah, that's that is an accurate. That's a good prediction to have. I'm about the same. I think they will win. They're definitely they're going to win West Virginia, Montana. They should win, and Ohio they should win. So that's 52 seats. Uh, whether they can win more is another question. They should win in Arizona. It is a you know it, Democrats are revolting against cinema. They, she's running as an independent. I don't know how that's going to work, but it's likely going to divide the ticket if she's still on the ballot with Ruben Gallego. And Carrie Lake is going to be the nominee. They should win there. If Trump wins the state, if Trump wins the presidency, they'll win in Arizona. So that'll be a 53 Senate majority. And then there's a couple other states where there should be competitive in Michigan. It's an open Senate seat. Uh, they're having a competitive primary there. I don't know who the candidate is going to be for the nominee there. Pennsylvania, it's going to be the guy, McCormick, who came in second to Oz in the last primary. He's an establishment Republican, but he's running against a Bob Casey, who's an incumbent. So that should be a tough race. There's all there, there's some there's a few other Senate races that could be competitive, like in Wisconsin and Nevada. Uh, but they should gain the Senate majority. I'm pretty confident in that. So 
you can uh, you can uh, screenshot this prediction. You can say that this prediction will be the Republicans will retake the Senate no matter what in 2024. If they don't, this was a catastrophic election for Republicans. And also Republicans are just not going to lose any seats in the Senate. If they lose any seats in the Senate, like not only do they not, first off, they're going to win in West Virginia. But if they somehow lose like a seat or two, uh, and they don't gain, and they don't gain the majority. It's a catastrophic election, but I don't think that's going to happen. And the final question from New England refugee, and the final question for today is he's asking about the culturally. He's well, I'll just go over the question. I was thinking about your IQ supplement, the culturally libertarian electorate. Your main thrust is that to win elections and gain power, we must appeal to Americans' notion of freedom. This seems to have worked with guns, COVID measures, and increasingly school choice. But how do we market freedom of association? We will be called bigots and normie heads. They are scared of being called racist more than they want to have more freedoms. Is there a better term than freedom association? I think it's just freedom and general liberty because and getting the best people for these jobs. It's an easy way to sell this, our ideas when it comes to hiring practices and in universities. They really, you really have to mark is that they're imposing racial quotas and imposing diversity and imposing anti-white discrimination on us. And that we want to give businessmen and universities, well, maybe not universities. We actually have to limit it. We have to limit their freedom of who they want as they would want to hire. They wouldn't want to accept any whites. Um, but it's really just giving businessmen and others the, the power to choose who they want to hire. They choose the best people for the job rather than being forced to hire someone just because of their, you know, they come from a racial minority group. And also it's the fact that, you know, everywhere else you don't have to have, you know, you can have the freedom to have a country club or whatever, and you don't have to worry about diversity. You don't have to have this imposed. You don't have to be sued for, you know, not accepting someone into your group that you don't want, but you have to, to, and order to run afoul of the civil rights regime. So you can really use this as freedom association and liberty. It's like saying, you know, these liberal bureaucrats are trying to take away the ability to live your life the way you want and to have the freedom to associate with who you want. And they want to associate, want to force you to associate and to do things you don't want. And that is a good way to sell all types of politics. So I would say that this is everything we propose is going to run the risk of being called racist, but or have that fear of it. But I think that taboo is eventually going to be diminished to an extent. And I think people are going to just accept doing things that they want to do and not worry about getting called racist. And we're already seeing that. I think conservatives already already rallied to people that are accused of being racist, much more so than they would have done 10 years ago. So there's some advances going on, and you just have to take the risk of, of having that criticism thrown against you. So that is it for this today's Highly Respected. Another long, great episode filled with a lot of great content and a lot of insight insight. So we're going to have a lot of great content prepared for later this week. So tune in for that. So until next time, stay respected.